All right, good, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started this evening. I want to welcome you to the Dalrated Church of Christ. If we have any visitors, we're glad to have you all with us tonight. Uh, we, have, uh, we are continuing our summer series tonight, and I'll introduce the speaker in just a moment. I know there's a couple of announcements. Uh, Doug may do some more of this, I guess, before our, our devotional time period. But, of course, our family here has lost a couple in this last week. Uh, we have lost uh, Verl Tillotson, passed away uh, yesterday, and then today uh, Miss Rain's mother passed away down in Florida, Miss Rain Coates. Uh, so please keep, uh, and of course that would be Jesse's grandmother passed away, and uh, y'all keep them in your prayers. I know that they're still waiting for those arrangements, and we'll pass those along when we can, but uh, obviously our family here being affected by losing those that they love, and, and Brother Verl of, of our own here. Y'all keep him and his, or his family in your prayers. Uh, quick announcement before we do begin this evening. Um, my Bible class, uh, one Scott Lockwood and I have been co-teaching on Sunday mornings, uh, we have originally said we were not going to meet. So if I haven't told you yet, we are going to meet on Sunday morning. So I'm changing our, my mind uh, because I have a substitute teacher now. So uh, if you all are in our class on Sunday mornings, please plan to go ahead and go to class uh, as normal. Uh, we will be picking up after this uh, summer series with new quarter of study, and hopefully we'll get that out and publicized and let y'all see what classes we'll be having as the, uh, the new quarter kicks off next month. Uh, as we said tonight, we're going to finish our keep going with our summer series. And tonight, um, I'm proud to be able to introduce my father as a speaker. And uh, my dad, whose also name is John, he gets called John the Older, John the Gray, uh, Big John, doesn't matter what it is. Normally, by the way, if you're talking about or to one of us, we really know who you're talking about or to, by the way. Uh, it's just the way we've always kind of uh, figured that out through the years. But uh, I, I am very pleased and uh, I'm very blessed to have him as my father. Uh, he has been a preacher as long as I, I've known. Uh, that's what I grew up as, as a preacher's kid. Uh, we've lived and he's preached in uh, Missouri and Kentucky and Tennessee and Arkansas and uh, we uh, are glad to have them down here in Montgomery now they lived here since a little over a year now uh, that moved here last March and so we're glad to have him speaking tonight as we continue our summer season I asked the girls I said well if you could introduce pop what would you talk about and uh, you know they don't care about his his degrees or his years of preaching, what they remember is the fact that every time they come home from a trip, they find a frog hidden somewhere in the house. Uh, a little wooden frog he brought back from Ukraine it tends to appear somewhere fishing, in, either in a fish a bowl or a toilet or a sink or something like that. And they said that they, uh, they would probably introduce him as the one who always plays and tickles them a lot. Uh, so that's what his children, uh, his grandchildren remember. And uh, what I remember, though, is a man who uh, has always stood very firm on his beliefs and has really studied and, and taught the Bible in ways that not only I, I was able to learn and understand, that, but that many others were. He has not just a love for teaching and, and preaching, but a love for mission work that really grew as we went to our first Ukraine trip together uh, back in 1994 together. And uh, so since then, that has grown and blossomed. Of course, that's what he does really full time now. Uh, that's going to be his retirement job, I think, is doing mission work. Uh, if you know him, you know he doesn't stop, he doesn't slow down, he won't give up, and uh, that's what I completely appreciate and admire about him. I don't want to take any more of his time up, but 
Uh, I, I'm very thankful to have him as my father, and I hope and pray that you all will be able to listen tonight and be able to get a good uh, lesson uh, from the Old Testament as we apply it to our lives today. Dad. Thank you, son. All right. We are looking at the Ten Commandments. Tonight we're looking at Exodus 20 and verse 17. You've seen little Prentice up here, and Sunday night nobody could get that bucket away from him. So uh, we put out some more, and uh, several of you have got them and brought them back, and that's great. I appreciate Larry Stowe working with the Dollar Tree down here on Atlanta Highway, which that way, and uh, by Walmart. And they, if you don't want to have to go through all that process, you just go in, and they'll have uh, a, a group set aside for you or give Larry your number and as soon as they do that he'll give you a call. Last year Bill and Jill went through and they, they kind of put it in order as you would go through the, the aisles and we tried to use that as well. So if you enjoy that uh, shopping which that kind of enjoyment is beyond my uh, capability of endurance but if you do enjoy that then you are welcome to, to go through and just find the best bargains you can to put it in that bucket. But tonight, as we, uh, we continue looking at the, uh, the Ten Commandments and what a marvelous study this is, I have always kind of been upset because people just kind of pass by the Ten Commandments whenever it comes to, to the Lord's Church today. It's as though that has no bearing on us, and that really is, is an impact overall about the Old Testament. So... I really enjoy the Old Testament, and I've spent most of my time in study of that. And so whenever Doug contacted me, and this was back when I was in Ukraine, asking me if I'd be willing to participate on it, that seemed so far away then, and here we are tonight. I was delighted for that. The Ten Commandments are critical. They are, they are a critical factor in civilization, not just in Israeli civilization, but in all civilization. In fact, it gives some basic foundation that the principles are eternal in their application. They're always relevant. They're universal in their, their application. They can relate to any nation, any culture, any language. And just look at some of these. Commandment number one, that gives you the foundation for acceptable worship. There is no other God. No matter how you define God, the Bible says there is but one God, and that's the Jehovah God of the Bible. And foundational to our worship is an understanding that our worship is acceptable only if we are directing that worship to the almighty Jehovah God of the Bible. This principle tells us what we need to do to be fit to worship God, what we need to conform to God's laws, it tells us the, the mode and the manner of worship. It actually talks about being located in a place to worship. In the Bible, it says you need to be in a place to worship. Some folks think, well, I can go and I can worship God on my fishing boat just as well. No, not according to the Bible. Number two, the foundation is a foundation of exclusiveness whenever it comes to religion. And I don't know about you, but all these little bumper stickers that spell coexist in all types of symbols just really aggravates me because that is blasphemy. It is not correct. The Bible says there is a principle of exclusiveness. Number three, 
is the foundation of reverence and respect. Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Do not profane God's name. Those that profane it are those that are blasphemous. They reject God. They reject God's teachings and they're going to be punished for it. Number four, you have the foundation of religious observances and that is the Sabbath day requirements. But the principle there is that there is a governing of God's will in your religious activities. Number five, there's the foundation of the family. Number six, the foundation of life's values. Do not murder. Number seven, the foundation of social purity. Do not commit adultery. Number eight, foundation of property rights. Do not steal. Number nine, the foundation of truth. Do not bear false witness. And then we come to our, our discussion tonight, the foundation of civility. And that foundation is stated, thou shalt not covet. I'm not sure how often you've looked at this or how deeply you've examined it, but our purpose tonight is to explore the meaning and to apply this principle to our culture. We live in what's designated as the postmodern culture. Now, that in itself is a good discussion, very interesting, but basically it means that you don't have to really believe anything. You don't even have to admit the, the laws that are written are absolutely valued for, any, for you if you don't like it. You just do your own business as you want it to be done. Thou shalt not covet, God says, and what that principle speaks to our current society is, is clear. It's extraordinary. And it's more applicable than most of us in this assembly tonight will realize. The principle is the last, but it's the most significant. In fact, I would suggest that everything above it rests upon our performing or our incorporating this principle in our life. Now, as I look at words, I always enjoy looking at the etymology of it. And the word covet is a term in our English that maybe you don't, uh, you don't really use that often, but in the study, uh, you'll find that it was used, the earliest that we can find in the English language, it was used in the 13th century, and it was used in a negative sense. And most of the time, we have associated the negativity of this term with it in our, our words. But the interesting study... Uh, the etymology is that it probably originated in our language today from the Latin cupidus. And this, this term in itself is very interesting. This is the concept of a wish, uh, an overwhelming passion, a desire, and ambition. It's an obsessive, compulsive behavior. Greeks wanted to explain human behavior, and so they would personify that in their, their pagan gods. And so from this intense, obsessive passion and, and overriding uh, zeal, they come up with the, the uh, uh, god Cupid in the classical mythology. Cupid 
is the God of desire. Uh, in the, uh, he was the offspring of the goddess Venus and the god Mars. He's known in Latin as the god armor. Uh, in, in French, it would be amour. Uh, of course, we'd understand the French being more uh, than the Spanish, but it talks about the god of love. His counterpart in the Greek would be the god Eros. Uh, Eros and Cupid, we often don't associate those two in, in our study of mythology. We see Cupid more as the chubby little boy with the wings that has the bow and the arrow that's always shooting at people to, to get them to fall in love uh, so that they have an uncontrollable desire that is obsessive in their behavior. Uh, that's the way that the Greeks would explain what we call today infatuation. Uh, and yet they called it Cupid. Well, in myths, Cupid is really a minor character. He's more of the catalyst that gets the story going uh, about the obsessiveness or the behavior of certain individuals. There is an interesting, interesting I'll just note this real quickly, an interesting point. One of the Greeks has Cupid in Psyche. Psyche is a female goddess, but the Greeks wanted to explain, well, how do you explain this affection and the attraction between male and female? They came up with the story of Cupid and Psyche. Cupid supposedly nicks himself with one of his own arrows, and he falls into the, uh, the trap that uh, the arrow has. Well, Cupid is the one that shows obsessive, compulsive behavior to control and, and to gain. Now, we're not myths uh, or pagans. We don't follow the myths, but modern culture seems to celebrate this pagan god. Uh, we have one day of the year dedicated to him, and uh, in that you see the visuals of Cupid extensively portrayed. But it's interesting that covet finds its root in this concept of Cupid. Language changes, and so by the mid-14th century, covet was used in a good sense, and it talked about a desire or a wish uh, to possess things. And basically, what the word refers to is a controlling desire that dictates your thoughts and your motives and your behavior. Uh, so whenever the Bible talks about you shall not covet, it's talking about this obsessive compulsion to control and to, uh, to do things that is going to bring gratification to you. Now, uh, in, in the Hebrew term, uh, the, the word is used to translate a great delight. Uh, Psalms 1 talks about the righteous man whose delight is meditating in the law of the Lord day and night. But this is the same concept. That's a delight. That's a desire that he has. And you could use the, the term desire synonymously here with delight. His delight, his desire is to meditate in the law of the Lord both day and night. It describes man's behavior regarding the animate and the inanimate things. So your desire can be in something that is living or it could be in some object. It could be an automobile. It could be in, in having that lowest 
you know, ERA that's possible. It could be in, in achieving success or it could be directed to an individual. That's the desire. It's an obsessive, compulsive control that, that dictates your thoughts and everything that, that you want. But look, it is that which gives a perceived delight. Oh, if only I can have this, I'm going to be happy. How many times have you heard that said? You know, if only, then I'll be happy. See, that's the perception that you're going to have. If only you can, can gain this, if only you can be in possession of this, if only you can control this, you're going to be happy. Well, wake up because you're not really in control of anything except your own life. That's the only control you have. But you can think that, and as long as you think that, you're going to be miserably unhappy in everything because you are operating on, on this basis that is just impossible. It's unrealistic. Uh, the behavior is described by desire. Lust is used in this term as well to describe this. A lot of people think lust is referred only in a sexual context. It's not. Uh, this term is translated as lust a number of times. But the idea is that, that I'm going to have this, this possession, and that's going to make me happy. Now note that this can be positive or it can be negative. All emotions are either positive or negative. They're, they're negative only if you choose for them to be negative. Remember the righteous man, Psalms 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he, he meditates. That, that's good. He needs to have that delight. He needs to have that desire. And so our desire can be positive or it can be negative, and we need to understand that as we go through the lesson. All right, a general application. Thou shalt not covet. Basically, we're talking about self-control, self-discipline. You are, you are making sure that you are not obsessively compelled to do it the way that you perceive things are going to be done. Now, just think for a moment what society would be like if everybody operated under that, that kind of philosophy. Deuteronomy 12, 8, Moses said, You shall not do at all what we are doing here today. Every man doing what is right in his eyes. And then you have the ref references in Judges 17 and 21 where there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes. Have you ever seen somebody that did something that was just so absurd and so ridiculous? And they thought it was right. They were convinced. Well, it didn't take far to, to see that in our society. But this is what we're talking about. Proverbs 21.2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So the general application is you have to have some kind of control. You just cannot allow your desires to run wild. 
You can't be obsessively compelled to do things the way that you want or else you're going to have anarchy. All right, the specific application is where we bring the, the study to tonight. And the specific application is really summarized in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter in through the narrow gate or the straight gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The straight way is not a way that has no turns. The straight way is a way that is restricted. Uh, it's an, an archaic term, but it means that there's boundaries, there's borders. And you are to enter in by the restricted way. Well, if the restricted way or the narrow way is, is that of, of borders and boundaries, what's the wide way? The wide way, you're free to do whatever you want. Do your own thing. Think your own thoughts. Go your own way. And, and what we find here is really a contrast between those that are self-controlled and those that have no control in their lives at all. And you begin to look at that civil, civilly, civically, that's, that's a, a recipe for disaster. Religiously, it's a recipe for eternal damnation. Well, this is a point, though, that quickly becomes uncomfortable. And uh, up to now... You know, it's, it's gone real good. But from now on, I'm walking on thin ice because I know now we're going to start into uh, what some would say, you've left preaching and gone to meddling. Well, let's look and see what the Bible says. It is it's uncomfortable whenever you begin to talk about that straight and that narrow way. It is not very convenient to talk about restrictions and self-control and depriving yourself of things that you perceive is going to give you happiness. It's far more comforting to think or to preach about many subjects other than preaching about a lack of self-control and never surrendering to that obsessive control of desires. Uh, we spent 17 years in Kentucky. Uh, I grew up in North Alabama. All we had up there were cotton fields, corn fields. Later on, beans came along. You move Kentucky, nobody has corn. Everybody had tobacco. Well, I, had, I knew nothing about tobacco. Interesting, interesting uh, growth process. And, and uh, of course, now it's basically gone. But a fellow was preaching in, in, in Kentucky, and he was preaching against the use of tobacco. You can preach against a lot of things in Kentucky, but used to, you don't preach against tobacco. And I had this good friend. In fact, he's a circuit preacher in the Methodist church. And he was preaching down in southern Kentucky, and he was preaching against smoking. And after that, he said some of the deacons came up to him, and they said, he said, now, uh, I forget the official title they gave. His name was Russell Bowe, but they told Russell, they said, now, you need to understand, you know, it, that you're being paid from this tobacco money that you've been preaching against. So you really don't need to preach against that. 
And Russell said, well, if that's the case, then just don't pay me because I'm going to keep on preaching. I appreciated Russell for that. And uh, when he told me, I, I did. I, I told him I appreciated that. But there are those that would say, don't preach against tobacco. You preach against those cannibals and those headhunters down in the South Pacific because we need to condemn them. We don't need to talk about tobacco use. Well, such preaching suggestions are often directed to the preachers whenever he touches upon a sin that's uncomfortably close. And it could be gossip, it could be modest dress, it could be recreational venues, it could be worrying, it could be unacceptable music you listen to, and uh, it could be uh, the fashion, it could be speech, and it could be the care of your physical body. And wow, you talk about some hot topics. I know because I've preached on those and I'd be cornered after the sermon, you know, because folks just really didn't appreciate uh, what the Bible had to say on there. And there's a number of biblical examples where folks were, were willing to divert or they were eager to divert the Lord's attention. I'm thinking of, remember in, in John's gospel, you had Jesus. He asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Three times, three times he asked him that. During the course of that conversation, Peter says, Lord, what about this fellow over here? He's talking about John. You look at it, I think it may be John 21 where that is. I'm not absolutely sure. But, but see, even Peter, an apostle, became uncomfortable because he wanted the, the sermon directed away from him and on to somebody else. It's so much easier whenever the sermon applies to somebody and, and not me. And uh, it, it's much more convenient, much more uh, comforting to excuse and rationalize our failures to control our desires by redirecting the application to somebody else. And uh, that is what we're talking about. Do not covet speaks about the control that we have an individual obligation to exert over our desires. Uh, if Here's an interesting thought. If uncontrolled desire is not expected, okay, let's say you've got some of these touchy areas and uh, you don't want to control that desire or you really don't want to hear that desire discussed, so if that's the case, how do we decide what desire is allowed to go uncontrolled? Well, I've got my pet desire, and I don't want to control that, but now brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, you need to, to look at that. How do we decide that? If I've got an uncontrolled desire, if something is, is my master, it may be my tongue, it, it may be emotions, it may be food, it, it may be, uh, you just fill in the blank. But that's my weakness. How do I decide, okay, here, but it's not okay for you over there? By whose standard is this determination be made? And let, think about this. If one can justify not controlling their pet desire, 
why must others control their pet desires? If I can, can excuse and rationalize my desire that controls me, why do you have to? That's the point that the Lord would make, you know, as he's talking about, about judging. Now, interestingly, uh, this point was used uh, in the 1500s by a fellow by the name of Johann Titzel, who was, went about selling indulgences, and that way folks could buy up, you know, the, the law. They could get a, a pass on some sin that they wanted to commit, and through that, St. Peter's Basilica was built. Just not Bible, though, as you look at that. Think about this point. Is your desire more difficult to control than the desire of somebody else? And so as a result of that, you just have a harder time. So you need more leniency. You need a greater privileged status to get by with allowing desires to control you than, than somebody else. Uh, I don't think that we, we would uh, agree to that. The godly principle about thou shall not covet is summed up with this. Our controlling desires and passions are to be focused upon God so that only good results from that. This is the point that, uh, uh, that Paul would make to the Galatians. Our question ought to be, how will this behavior... Bring glory to God. How will this behavior further the Lord's church? Will my failure to do this or my action in doing this, how's that going to help me to be a productive worker for the Lord? Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let us not boast except in the Lord. Let our priorities be that of the Lord. Now the Bible highlights these desires that must be governed. And, and some of these are positive desires that we have. For instance, number one, John 4, 34, Jesus says, My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. The word meat is used metaphorically to communicate your greatest desire. This is, what, this is what sustains your life. This defines your purpose, my meat, my purpose, my objective for being right here is to do the will of God. John 9, and, and Doug referenced this recently, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day Night is coming when no man can work. Night is coming when no man. You, you are given a limited amount of time to work for the Lord. Night is coming when you're not going to be able to do that work. Oh, but I'm tired. I'm going to, yeah, you're going to have rest. Revelation 14, blessed are those that die in the Lord. Yay. Their works follow them. They're blessed. They're, they're in rest. And how wonderful that is. They are resting in peace. But we can't rest while we're living and breathing on this earth. Our purpose in life is to desire to serve God. Ecclesiastes, interesting book. It, it discusses there the very point that we're making. 
Ecclesiastes written by Solomon. And Solomon, as you read his life, what a tragic ending he has. Futility sums up the, the theme of Ecclesiastes. Futility. And that sums up the, the lives of those that fail to conquer ungodly desires. One can reach the pinnacle of success in, in every facet of life. And, and Ecclesiastes lists all these. But in the end, they'll only find emptiness. And Ecclesiastes closes with this blunt statement about God's judgment on our desires. He says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God, keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything that is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Our desire... Why are we here? What are we doing? What is your purpose in life? Our purpose in life, that desire is to please God. Another desire is our respect for the, the book of God. Psalms 119, the longest chapter of the Bible, and it, it speaks about the Bible. And uh, Psalms 119, 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And then later on, verse 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Your desire, the psalmist says, number one is to be the Word of God. That's the Bible. This is the Word of God. Let me ask you. <clears throat> Here's another one of those uncomfortable questions. What's your number one reading material? What is the first thing you read in the morning? In compare, comparison with everything you've read today, how much of the Bible is there? You know, to be real honest... There are those that will spend more time in social media than they will in reading the Bible. What does that say about your desire? The psalmist there says, oh, how I love your law. The, the psalmist, uh, righteous man in Psalm 1. My desire, my delight is in the law of the Lord. And I meditate on it day and night. Where's your desire? Your desire should be a compelling obsession to read God's book. Another one is that of sanctification. Hebrews 12, 14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification means you have pulled apart from those that are in the world. You have separated yourself from the ungodly. Now, you'll, you'll associate with them to help teach them the truth. But as far as just regular fun activities and fellowship, the Bible says, nah, -uh. the Christian has no business in that. Come out from among them and separate yourself. Be ye holy as I am holy. That's what sanctification is. How strong is sanctification in your life? To what extent are you willing to compromise? Be ye holy as I am holy. Powerful point. Our pursuit of godliness. 
Psalm 34, 11 through 14 says, Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days? He des- do you desire life? Do you enjoy life? That's the desire. This is your compulsion, your compelling purpose. You desire life. Okay, Psalm 34 says in order to do that, good will result if number one, you control your tongue. Number two, you control your associations. Number three, your energy to focus on what God says is good and you are going to control your spirit. It's all self-control. You see, that is the, the straight way. That is the governing and the guide. The Lord counsels Christians to control their desires. And here's an interesting point. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 6 each talks about the temple of God. Chapter 3 says you are the temple of God. Chapter 6 says you are the temple of God. But they're two different contexts. Chapter 3 is talking about the congregation, the church. We are the temple of God. Chapter 6 is talking about the individual and their body. We are the temple of God. And so in chapter 6, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about their need to control their desires because what they do in their body impacts the temple of God. And 1 Corinthians 6 focuses upon this self-control. Three common areas, and inspiration is making a very blunt point here, that no one has the right to allow personal desire to override God's boundaries. You don't have that right. And in our postmodern culture, you don't have that right. It doesn't give you the line. If God says this, then that's what you do. You can't override it. You can't excuse it or rationalize it. No justification to pamper the pet desires that we have. And so, no, I'm not going to overlook yours if you'll overlook mine. That's not the way it goes. We must follow God's will. The Christian's desires control personal desires because our eternal destiny is controlled. Have you ever thought about that? Your eternal destiny is controlled by your choices on how you're going to control your body. What you do with your body. And that's what we're talking. Do not covet... Do not allow those desires to operate in some obsessive, compulsive way where you are out of the parameters that God has set for you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. And listen, he says, Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. Now, there were some in the New Testament time that said, well, it didn't really matter what you do in your body. They were the Gnostics. And they said, we can live and party and, and we can do all we want. It's not going to matter. First John addresses that particular error. And the Corinthians also needed to understand that they needed to glorify God in their body. The way you control your personal desires, 
dictates how you're taking care of God's temple. How are you taking care of God's temple? It may not be a very convenient question to answer. But this is the point. Our Corinthian brethren struggled with, with controlling their desires. Now in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists three things, three common things that probably they had problems with, but so do you and I as well. And this illustrates, I think, the point very well. Number one, what about personal insults and injustices? Well, somebody just slaps you upside the head. They just really cut you down. They just, uh, you know, whatever they can do to irritate you, they're, what are you going to do about that? Well, the carnal desire, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Well, you do me, and I'm going to make sure that uh, I'll get you back. Another point, dietary events. Innocent food is what he's talking about here, and yet the Corinthians had a problem with that. But an uncontrolled desire allows self to consume as it wishes. Forget health, forget the boundaries, forget the advice. <clears throat> I want it. And then a third point, sexuality. The desire is permitted unrestrained activity. And in each one of these things, the Corinthian church was having problems because the members were not controlling self. They were coveting, they were expressing this desire outside of the parameters that God had set. And so there are consequences. For instance, the first, in personal insults and injustices, if I allow desire to be uncontrolled, it will be, as some said, everyone will be blind and toothless. And we don't want that. What about the second point? If I allow uncontrolled desire to, to impact me in regard to my health practices, then I'm going to have multiple physiological, emotional, and social issues that will never end, and that will only make me miserable. And that's contrary to what God says. Interestingly, the... the uh, Whenever I was at Freed Hardeman, uh, one of the teachers my freshman year there had us read S.I. Macmillan's book, None of These Diseases. Interesting book. Dr. Macmillan was writing from a, a medical perspective how the Bible would stress health and healthy choices. And it's amazing how God gave Israel the Old Testament laws so that they would have the proper diets and their bodies would be able to enjoy life. Well, those that don't, don't practice healthy habits, they're not going to enjoy life. They're miserable. What about sexuality? Whenever uh, uncontrolled sexual desires are allowed, which our culture and society seems to applaud and, and seem to go beyond whatever the Bible would, would claim as perverted, That desire brings disease, degradation, death, and ultimately damnation. You see how controlling desires is critical for this. God has given a most inconvenient command to postmodern civilization. Do not allow bad desires to rule your choices. Choose so that you allow your desire to lead you to life and you will hear God's commendation. 
Real quick, some lessons that resonate from this. Number one, sowing and reaping is a reality. Is that the end or do we have five minutes? That's it. Number two, choose life. Number three, avoid the extremes. And I wish you'd look at that, Ecclesiastes 7. Very, very important there. Uh, you, you can be too righteous. Of course, you can be too unrighteous as well. But God wants us to be moderate in what we're doing. Okay, we'll stop there and we'll just sum up right at the end. Thank you all.